Hello and welcome to Ely Saying Something. Tonight I'm joined by Extinction Rebellion Ely. I've got Emily with me. Hello, Emily. Hello. And Rod. Hi. Right. What is Extinction Rebellion? Well, uh, Extinction Rebellion is a network of people committed to using non-violent direct action to put pressure on governments and authorities to change their priorities in relation to the climate and ecological emergency that we're facing. Um, it's, it's not a sort of secret club. Um, you know, anyone who wants to uh, align themselves with XR's uh, principles and values can act in the name of Extinction Rebellion. Um, anyone can get involved and it encompasses people from all walks of life, all ages, all, all cultural backgrounds. Um, perhaps the most important thing to know to start with about Extinction Rebellion is that it has three demands, so this is our focus. Okay. Um, the first is to put pressure on governments and the media to tell the truth about the climate and ecological emergency that we are facing. Um, at the moment, it can't be said that anyone is um, putting out into the public domain the information that people need to decide how to act. Um, included in that is obviously the BBC, which has particular responsibility to its citizens to tell the truth. Um, we've seen a little bit of that from David Attenborough recently, but yeah. nowhere near, near enough, you could say. Um, but also the government and, and local authorities, local governments and corporations. Um, the second demand is then to act as though that truth is real. So to act to halt biodiversity loss and to lower emissions net z- uh, to net zero by 2025. Many people think that's a... Uh, very ambitious target, but I think we, we know we're set on mission by what is necessary, and that is what um, we believe is necessary. That's an incredibly important date, 2025. Okay, can I, before we get on to the third demand, I'm just going to come back to you on a couple of points. Now, mm-hmm. you've used a few terms there emergency. Rod, mm-hmm. is climate change an emergency? Absolutely, it is. Um, most of what we know, and I, I say we, um, the, the public, know about climate change is informed by the media and the media are informed by something called the IPCC, which is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Now, um, uh, late last year, the IPCC, and these guys are constituted by the United Nations and have been around for 40 plus years, so they should know what they're talking about. Um, They said, we have 10 to 12 years in order to stop what they call runaway climate change. So that's to take urgent action to prevent climate change, which is unstoppable. Now, the IPCC are basically diplomats, and they're diplomats who, um, uh, who report on scientific papers. And uh, they've done a lot of reports in the past, and those reports have almost all been very conservative. Um, a lot of other scientific thought has said that the IPCC are way too conservative, and we think that 10 to 12 years is actually more like five to six. Hence, 2025. Okay. It's important to say the IPCC is a well-respected international body. It's not a crazy left-wing think tank. So this is stuff that's worth listening to. Uh, This is um, 8,000 of the world's top climate scientists. Excellent. Emily, biodiversity loss. What does that mean in lay terms? Well, that means the extinction of many species of mammal, uh, insects, sea life and birds, um, but also the, the massive um, loss of animal life that we've seen in this country. Um, I can't remember the percentage, but it's, it's, a, it's a huge percentage of mammals in this country have um, been lost since the 70s. 
60 percent of world mammalian species have been lost since yeah. 1976 i think it is yeah um sea life is in real difficulty not just because of the warming of the oceans but because of something called ocean acidification mm. and also because of plastic pollution which i think we all know a lot about thanks to uh, blue planet and the loss of insects is also of huge concern. I mean, you know, it's something we don't go around noticing very much, perhaps day to day. But without insects, our food chains will collapse. So we should all be very concerned about um, the, the losses that we've seen in insect life. I think we all need to get more biologically literate. I mean, I'm going to confess, I don't fully remember food chains from school. But mm -hmm. I know with, with any kind of value chain, if you remove one link, you know, the whole... Medium as a problem, okay. Of course, and it's pollinating insects, as, of course, as well, in particular, that we, that we rely on. Okay, so as fauna, we're all in this together. Mm. Before we get on to your third demand, one more term you use there, zero emissions by 2025 or 2035. What's your date 2025. then? 2025. Wow, okay, so that's not far off. Um, zero emissions, we're talking carbon? Yes. Yeah, okay. How can we get emissions down to zero in such a short time frame? That's uh, an excellent question and one which is often asked. Um, neither Emily or I are scientists, uh, but if you, that, but there's a huge amount of scientific papers around. Um, the, the best one that I could direct people towards is something called Zero Carbon Britain, which is um, uh, effectively it's a white paper produced by the Centre for Alternative Technology at McCuncliffe in Wales. Uh, these guys know their, know their onions, um, and they've actually detailed how we get from where we are now to zero carbon. Okay, we'll post a link to that paper on our website over the next week. Uh, look out for that. Third demand is a citizens' assembly. Which one of you wants to tell me what that is? Well... <laughs> um, th that, so you were, you were asking how we get to zero carbon. Yep. And part of... That answer is going to involve the Citizens' Assembly. So the Citizens' Assembly will be a randomly selected of a group of people, probably about um, 100 is suggested. Uh, they'll be um, selected using a process called sortition, which is a random um, process similar to jury duty. And those people are presented with information by impartial and um, unbiased experts in the field. And then they decide what we're going to do. They decide on what policies we're going to um, implement. And this is a way to bypass the sort of current de democratic systems that are not working in our favour when it comes to the climate emergency. And I think Rob can give you some examples of how citizens' assemblies have been used. Uh, sure, but before I do, just to back that up, um, it's not that, 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 um, that democracy isn't working. It seems as if democracy is actually stymied they can't make important decisions and i'm not going to use the b word but please don't all you have to do <laughs> is look at the last three years of total in incapability of making any decision and suddenly citizens assemblies become a very sensible idea mm -hmm. yeah the citizens assembly has some appeal for a, a lot of us and um, we spoke last time on the podcast about politicians being caught in a finite electoral cycle mm. Absolutely. therefore the rational thing to do is get elected next time to focus on a patient goal mm. yeah. uh, I realise there's some impatience on your part from my point it's a patient goal like zero carbon emissions is really very difficult there might not be many votes in the short run yeah. so uh, you need something else to get that through and where you look at different types of electoral system like a referenda versus um, uh, a direct election 
yeah, difficult. You get you get one decision from a referendum really hard to implement in a parliamentary setting. Now, we've seen in the Republic of Ireland something controversial like abortion. They got that through um, using a citizens' assembly route. But we've had a citizens' assembly here in the UK. Didn't get much attention, but around adult social care. So it can be done, and it is being done, you're saying, abroad, yeah? Um, indeed. Um, Iceland, uh, the government in Iceland... Uh, Iceland isn't a, a very big country, but at least it, it's uh, many millions, so it shows that a citizens' assembly can function as a form of government and function for a long time, because the government in Iceland collapsed totally uh, in the financial crash in 2008 and hasn't subsequently been reconstituted. So they are existing in government terms on a citizens' assembly, and they've elected to pay more taxes, because they can now actually see that their taxes are going where they want them to go, rather than just disappearing into some governmental hole. And that's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, parties are instinctively nervous of upsetting voters. Mm. So if you're going to make an unpopular decision, you may as well get the people to make it themselves in their own interests and remove the stakeholders. Exactly. Exactly. And then you don't get the ping-ponging that you would get between one party being in and reversing the previous party's decision. Because that isn't going to work in terms of climate change. We need to have one decision made and stuck to, and it needs to be cross-party. Yeah, uh, across the whole population. Indeed. Now, when you're engaging with that whole population, I understand you believe in non-violent civil disobedience. Okay, what does that mean? Well, uh, yes, it it means um, mass... Uh, disruption, yeah. but carried out in a non-violent way. I mean, uh, I think it's important to say always when we talk about this choice of non-violence that we very much uh, stick to in, in Extinction Rebellion, um, that it's a choice that we have um, in the society that we live in now. It's not a choice that all people have at this time in, in all over the world, particularly in the Global South, and we stand in solidarity with people who find themselves not able to... Um, retain non-violence in the, in the face of violence that they face from the authorities. I mean, we're very lucky in this country that at the moment we don't face violence from the police if we remain peaceful. Um, we're incredibly lucky. On the whole, yeah. on the whole. I mean, I speak for myself. Those London demonstrations yeah. were kind of characterised by good relations with the police, which I understood, I understand, led to some criticism from some other pressure groups. I don't think... Well, you could, you could call the Home Secretary a pressure group if you wanted to, um, but that's where the main criticism came from. The Home Secretary was livid with um, Cressida Dick uh, because her officers were restrained and courteous, as indeed they should have been. Fantastic, because you know what? They live in the environment too. And indeed, and when we explained the rational arguments that XR has about um, I- imminent climate collapse, they were shocked and worried and basically, OK, they're humans and they have children and grandchildren. They do. And um, it's interesting, this non-violent angle, that's part of the things that's attracted me to yourselves as a group, although this isn't an endorsement of the group. Um, But you do use quite violent language, don't you? Direct existential threats, our house is on fire, food insecurity, ocean acidification. Mm. That's in contrast with how you actually conduct yourself, which is peaceful. Um, Well, you called it violent language. I would say that's us telling the truth. Which is... First of your demands. Yeah, I mean that's the truth about what we're what we're facing. If we carry on with business as usual, Um, but I think part of an important part of Extinction Rebellion is called regenerative culture, and it's about creating the kind of culture within the organisation that we want to see in society. And part of that is 
supporting each other and also to um, act and, and speak to each other with, um, with non-violence. Um, that includes amongst ourselves, but also yep. to the police or to whoever we're... I think if we've learned anything over the last three years, yeah. calling each other idiots doesn't get us anywhere. <laughs> yeah. okay. Well, non-violent civil disobedience has also got a very long history of success. Absolutely. So that, and that's, you know, this, this is based on research by Roger Hallam, um, who is one of the founders of And Gail Bradbrook, the, the other yeah. founder. Who looked into this a lot and found that non-violent civil disobedience is by far the way, best way to kind of get your point across. It so. works. And yeah, more power to that, more power to that. You've got to win hearts and minds, and you don't do that with a Molotov cocktail. <laughs> um, how did you two become involved, Rod? Um, uh, actually, I've got quite a long history and a long history locally. Um, uh, I, I hope I'm not going to be blowing my own trumpet here, but if you like, I can go through some of the things I've previously been involved yeah, in. Yeah, because I'm interested in people and why you're motivated to act. Yeah. Okay, well, um, I, I first started to get interested in... in all things to do with what we call climate change some 30 odd years ago. I say what we used to call climate change because we tend now to call it climate collapse or climate chaos because change is much too soft a word. Uh, people don't take any notice of change but collapse and chaos they maybe would. Um, so I got interested in this because I heard some of the early IPCC reports and I thought hmm this is interesting. Um, I'm an engineer so I have a, a fairly strong scientific base to, to uh, my engineering and um, it interested me, it got my attention, I learned a lot about it and after the first Rio Earth Summit there was something called Local Agenda 21 which was um, a spin-off from the Rio Earth Summit which was an international thing. The Local Agenda 21 was something that local authorities were all requested to start up to provide a bottom-up approach to tackling climate change. Um, I was one of the founder members of the Ely LA21 group, and this is back in the, oh, I would guess, early 90s, something of that sort. Uh, and then during the mid-90s, I started up and headed the Ely Climate Change Committee um, as a, an unpaid advisor to East Cambridgeshire District Council. Ran that for two or three years, uh, which culminated in the writing of a climate change strategy, which was presented to the council, and I have little doubt went straight into the bin because it never saw the light of day. Um, and uh, you've preempted my question there. Well, thanks, <laughs> thanks indeed, for that. Indeed. So, I mean, that's a bit of my history. Uh, and more latterly, um, I've been occasionally doing. Um, I did a, uh, an A module of a master's degree at, at uh, Centre for Alternative Technology last year in in climate change, and. Shortly after that, Extinction Rebellion UK launched. Yeah. And suddenly my interest was back. Fantastic. And that's how I was back on this case. And Emily, what about you? Well, I think I've been interested um, sort of vaguely in environmental issues for a long time. And the way I channeled that is through various lifestyle choices. You know, we did vegan January, reduced meat and dairy intake, and, you know, bought things secondhand. Yeah. Eco-cleaning products, you know, all the, all the usual things, renewable energy. Um, and like other people, I think I hoped that that would spread quickly. And in some senses it has, if you look in the rise of veganism and that sort of thing. There's been a lot of enthusiasm for those things. But I think it's, as we were talking about the IPCC report, I think last year suddenly it hit a lot of people that it, change was just not happening anywhere near fast enough. And, and, and the bottom-up stuff is fine, but it's, it's got to come from everywhere. It has to come from individuals, it has to come from local governments... It needs to come from national governments and it needs to come from international policy. And 
more people need to be involved directly in trying to um, put pressure on the authorities to create change really quickly. Okay. Now, obviously, the environment knows no borders. Pollution knows no borders. But we are a local pressure group for local people at Ely Progressive. So what can we expect from XR in Ely? Well, first of all, we have... um, a meeting next Saturday at 3pm at the, uh, that's the 8th of June, at the Lighthouse Centre. 3pm, 8th of June, Lighthouse Centre. Yes. That's timely. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) Isn't it? Um, And if you come along to that, um, we'll be deciding together, actually, what route uh, XR really is going to take. We are a non-hierarchical organisation. We don't have leaders. Um, We will take different responsibility for different parts of the organisation at different times. Um, rotating positions of responsibility and part of that is trying to find new ways of making uh, group decisions um, not necessarily consensus based we don't all agree all of the time but no. um, we're trying to get everybody involved in, in, in big decisions of the group so. Do you know that's absolutely key because um, one of, when I've tried to approach people and get people engaged in a non-partisan political organisation people keep people often give me this phrase the tyranny of the annoying sometimes <laughs> groups contain annoying people with some free evenings mm. so you're saying that lots of people can contribute in many different ways then yes and we just from just on the on a small level we run the meetings so that we make sure that everybody's voice is heard or everybody who wants to speak can be heard we're very yeah. keen that a few voices don't dominate um as we often see happening at <laughs> yeah these, these things um but also right up to the, the way we're making big, big decisions about what the group is going to do um we want as many people to feel like they, they own the process as possible. And in our key values and principles, one of, one of the key things there is that we value everybody and everybody's opinion and all voices are heard. Mm. What about young voices? Because it's a Saturday afternoon, I might have my children with me. I mean, are, are families welcome? To this particular event, um, that would cause the organisers a little bit of difficulty because what we're trying to do, this is, this is at the first general public meeting. Yeah. Um, uh, we have uh, subsequent to that and um, the question being asked one of the questions being asked at this general meeting is what would we like to see as local events and what we're hoping is there will be a lot of local events which are very family friendly yeah you know um, things in parks uh, we could put on a people's assembly in a park or a chalking event where we get the kids to come along and draw their favorite animal that's heading for extinction on on the pavements so um, inclusive in 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 that respect but at a public meeting, possibly not to families. Okay. What do you not think? very small children, perhaps, but anyone who can sit still. What about teenagers, though? Because teenagers, oh, teenagers are oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. And XR Youth is a, is a really important strand of Very this. strong. And XR have been supporting the school strikes as well. I've been, I've been stewarding down in Cambridge at the school strikes. And, and those two campaigns are closely mm. interlinked. So I think getting youth on side... Um, Absolutely, yeah. Now, and uh, members of XR met with Michael Gove recently, yeah. and uh, they took a teenager in with mm. them. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you had any reports back from said teenager how he was received oh, by Mr. Sure. Gove or, or, or <laughs> whatever. But I just thought it was absolutely uh, fantastic that um, you were able to get in there and get his ear. Okay, actually, on families, I, mm. I, I'm a parent. Mm, um, me too. How can I talk to? <laughs> yeah, we're all we're all in this together. We've got a vested interest. How can I talk to my family about climate change? Mm, that's a real it's tough a one. one. <laughs> it, 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 it is a tough one. And we are asked that quite often. And everybody as, who has um, children in Extinction Rebellion is asking themselves the same question. And, and in, in many ways, you could sort of 
similarly it to would you choose to teach your child to drive you know and the answer is probably not in a lot of cases so if you want to talk about something really difficult to your child get someone else to do it unfortunately in xr there's so many people and so many resources and so many links and so much stuff online that teenagers we can just direct them towards something and a great place to start would be greta thunberg mm. yeah um greta thunberg now there, there's an issue there's an issue um as a parent I look at her and obviously I'm keen for my children to learn about her because it's incredibly inspiring what mm-hmm. she's doing. I'm also slightly worried on a, on a personal level though. I mean, should we expose young people to platforms like that? Should we put them out there? I think, the, I think everyone has to find their own boundary between mm. telling the truth and um, making it age appropriate. And I think um, that's a very difficult line to tread. But I, I think, think you've just summed are, up parenting. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You know, and, and people's boundaries will be different. Some, will, some children and some parents will have different, you know, different boundaries. And, um, but part of what Extinction Rebellion is doing is, is building, building resilient communities. And I think that's going to be very important in the future. And part of that is bringing families together to, to think about these things, not in isolation, but, but together. Okay. Um, I mean, it's family that, that motivates many, many people in Extinction Rebellion. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's a case of, do we talk to our kids about it now, or do we just let them find out in 20 years' time? And if we just let them find out in 20 years' time, the likelihood is that they're not going to like us very much. And I really don't want my grandchildren to hate me. That's a great motivation. That's a great motivation. Before we wind up, I do want to go back to one of these um, emotive phrases, because we live in an area, where, now many of us just sleep here and then go and work somewhere else, but many people will work locally in, in agriculture. I work tangentially in agriculture. You use a phrase called food insecurity. Any chance of telling me what that means? Uh, yeah, I can, I can do that. I mean, we've got some excellent examples that have recently been spoken by some very public figures. Uh, Michael Gove, you mentioned him earlier yourself. I did. I'm not endorsing him, I just mentioned him. No, nobody would want to endorse him. <laughs> well, Michael some Gove. people would, and for balance, I have <laughs> yes. to say that. Yeah, yeah. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, Michael Gove himself said that, um, that soil fertility in the UK, we probably only have about 30 seasons left. Uh, so that's um, you know, quite shocking coming from somebody of, uh, of that yeah. um, calibre. He's not leading with that in his leadership campaign, he but he did isn't. say it. He, he did say isn't. it. And then shortly after that, we had uh, the head of the Environment Agency saying that we probably only had 15 to 20 years' worth of drinking water left in the UK. Now, these things are incredibly serious and should really have been picked up more in, in the media. And both of those things are totally involved with, with sustainable food supply. You know, without soil fertility and without water, we don't have any food. And uh, do you know what? We all need food. That's as fundamental oh, yes. as gravity. These are huge issues, and it just strikes me in the noise around the B word. <laughs> a lot of this important stuff is being lost. Emily Rod, really appreciative of your time. I'm about to cut you off. If there's one more thing you wanted to shout at me, what would it be? Yeah, can we just tell you, um, uh, after the public meeting on the 8th, we're hoping to do um, a, a, a very powerful talk called Heading for Extinction and What to Do About It. This is a talk that has been doing the rounds nationally, um, created by Extinction Rebellion, to, to give a, um, a, a people's eye view, if you like, of the disaster that is climate collapse and also what we can do about it. So the first half of the talk is, here's some really bad news, guys, that you might not be familiar with, and then here's what you can do about it, how you can help. So um, we will be looking to organise dates for that 
after this weekend's meeting. Okay, and if somebody wants to get involved with the group locally, what do they do? They can find us on Facebook. If you search for Extinction Rebellion Ely, there's a uh, group and a page with details of all our events. And there's also an email address you can write to. It's xrely at protonmail.com. And someone will respond if you, if you write to that. Um, and also it might be worth, uh, if people are further afield, just, just saying that there are also uh, groups in Peterborough, Cambridge and Bury St Edmunds. Superb. And uh, finally, Emily, what is XR Baroque? <laughs> XR Baroque is a group of early music professionals who, are, um, who want to use music um, in, in protests. Um, specifically early music? Specifically early music, that's my yep. profession. <laughs> I play uh, Baroque cello and viols, uh, 17th, 16th to 18th century music. And uh, it's very niche, but it's very powerful music, and uh, that's our specific skill. And we wanted to bring that to non-violent protest. Great news. Emily, Rod, thanks for your time. As we said last Thank time, you. there are a lot of people who are engaged locally because there's a lot to be engaged about locally. Mm-hmm. If you're Ely saying something, please do get in touch. <laughs>